0: the five essential documents you need in your state plan. This is Prime Law Podcast, your recommended dose of legal juice. My name is Andrew mertz I'm a licensed attorney with Prime Law Group. And I'm an estate planner. Uh, My job is to help people put together wills and trusts and other estate documents that help them on their journey through life. And that's what I hope you get from this podcast. I want to help you create a plan that makes you live your best life. So with that in mind, let's get into it. I'm gonna be talking today about the five essential documents that you need in your estate plan. The first one, you may have heard of. It's called The Last Will and Testament, or The Will. Now there's a lot of mystique that comes around with wills that people don't know what they're for. You may have seen in the movies someone going into the lawyer's office, their very rich Uncle Pennybags has died, and they open up the document and they say, it is now time for the reading of the will. That never happens. It's many stories like that, but they're all Hollywood. What the will does, though, is it disposes of your property at death. And let me take a little bit of a back step here and explain what do I do as an estate planner. Like I said, I help draft wills and trusts and estate documents that help people along their journey through life. But as an estate planner, I'm helping someone plan for that singular event in their life, which is of course their death. I'm helping to make sure that their property goes to who they want, make sure that they have, if they have significant assets, tax advantages, and I think most importantly, helping families through tough times. This is one of the hardest times and when someone passes away. And so I have the opportunity to make that process better and easier. And so that's what I hope to help you with. And so the foundational document, the very first document that we ever talk about when we're talking about the basic estate plan is, of course, the last will and testament. I'm just going to call it a will. And most people just call it a will. Now there's a very sad statistic out there. According to LexisNexis, 55% of people in America will die without a will. That means over half of people don't put together their plan for their state. And as I said this is the foundational document. This is the one document if you have none other. This is the one you need. And over half of people don't do it. And I've heard many reasons why. Some people say I don't own I don't own a lot of property. Some people say I don't care. I you know, some people jokingly, but I think with some conviction say I'm never going to die so I don't need a will. This is truly a podcast around the concept of memento mori. Remember, you will die. And be a part of that 45%, and let's hope we can reduce that over the years. But 55% of Americans will die without a will. And as I said, the will is the foundational document. So what does the will do? Well, taken down to its absolute bare bones, a will disposes of your property. It says, what I want to go to who? I want the car to go to Jenny. I want the house to go to Jim. Uh, Lots of J's in my uh, stuff because there's a lot of J's in my firm. And so what the will then does, is it creates a legally enforceable right. What that means is a court will honor your will as long as the will was properly executed. In essence, it makes sure that what you want to happen, happens. Now, I've seen some very heartwarming stories around the will, about what you can put into a will. I've seen so much good come out of a will, which is people giving money to charity, or setting up a trust for a disabled loved one. And that's where a will is truly not just essential, but core to the estate plan. These stories tell us when the will is not just essential, but is just the foundation to a well thought out estate plan. So let's talk a little bit about what you need to do in order to have a valid will. Now, Prime Law Group, has licensed attorneys for both Wisconsin and Illinois. So a lot of what of our examples are going to be are going to be from those two jurisdictions. However, a lot of what we can talk about can be talked generally. Every state recognizes wills. Every state recognizes powers of attorney, trusts, all of that. So a lot of these concepts can apply statewide, but a lot of my specific examples, if I do, are going to be based on either Illinois or Wisconsin state law. So let's talk a little bit about Illinois here. So what do you need to have a valid will? It starts out where you have to be at least 18 years of age. Children cannot create a will. In my humble opinion, this creates a lot of problems, but it's just an opinion and it's worth what you paid for it. But 18 years of age or older, minimum age to do a will. Second thing you have to have is sound mind and memory, or what is known as testamentary capacity. Now, testamentary capacity, we'll do an entire episode later on that, but basically what testamentary capacity is, it is you know who you are, who your family is, what your property is, and most importantly, how you want that property to be disposed of at the time of your death. If you meet those four qualifications, you have testamentary capacity. One of my favorite stories when I was going through trust and estates class was a story about a gentleman who the family sued because he disinherited all of them. And he was an absolute whack job. I mean, this gentleman basically, when he died, was known for, shall we say, throwing certain items across the fence that were, shall we say, stinky and smelly onto his neighbors because he didn't like them. But he it was basically absolutely crazy. But that does not mean that he did not have testamentary capacity. So we'll talk about that in a later episode. Another requirement for a will, you have to have it in writing. That is, it has to be either written or it has to be printed, but we do not do verbal wills. Now, some of you out there in cyberspace are gonna tell me that I'm getting it wrong because there's such a thing as a video will. Those were a fad. They are no longer a thing and I would never recommend them for anybody, but you are technically correct, which is the best kind of correct. However, for our purposes, a will has to be in writing. Finally, a will has to be signed in the presence of two witnesses. That doesn't necessarily mean the witnesses are, shall we say, watching you with laser focus signing the will, but it means that they understand that you are signing this will and they verify that you have testamentary capacity, that you are over 18 years of age and that they saw you sign the will. So that's the makings of a basic will. And so why is the will the foundational document? The reason the will is the foundational document is because it is attached to the very event that an estate planner is planning for, death. It only becomes effective upon death. You can modify a will, you can revoke a will, you can do anything you want with a will. It doesn't matter until the testator, the person making the will, dies. And that's why it's the foundation. Because as an estate planner, that is my job, helping people plan for that one event. first documents the will the second document it's what's known as the power of attorney for health care now we're stepping backwards along the line of documents and each of these documents falls within a timeline of your estate plan again we'll go more into this into later episodes but the power of attorney for health care allows you to have someone else make decisions for you regarding health care so what happens if you don't have a power of attorney well there are two things that could happen. First one is that you end up under what's called the surrogacy laws of your state. Basically the legislature has passed a law and that law says in the event that a person cannot make decisions for themselves and they haven't left any directions, these are the list of people in order that get to choose. Now usually it starts off with the spouse and then it moves to the kids and then to the parents and then up and down the line until we find someone. But What happens if you don't have anyone in your life? What happens if you no longer have a spouse or you never had a spouse? What if you're estranged from your kids? What if you're estranged from your parents? What if one of those people on that list of priority is someone you don't want making healthcare decisions for you if you can't make them yourself? That's what this document allows you to do. You get to choose who makes those decisions for you. It empowers you to be able to have someone you trust make the decisions for you. Now, Illinois also allows you to put caveats that change how this relationship works. So what you can say is, I'm willing to trust you, but I don't want you making healthcare decisions for me unless I'm unable to do so. The power of attorney, you can do that. The same thing goes where if you have a relationship where you're like, I trust you, I don't want you to make decisions, But you probably should have access to my medical records, we can allow that too. There are a few formalities, not as many as that go with with the will, but there are a few formalities and statutory disclosures that are included with some of the forms you see online. Here's what I'm going to tell you. All the forms that I'm talking about today, all the documents, you can find them online. The problem with using online documents is you have the form without the substance. Having an experienced estate planner means that we know how these documents work together to form an estate plan. It's not just having these documents. That's a great start, but it shouldn't be the end. Continuing on. So we've talked about the power of attorney for healthcare. We've talked about the will. Let's talk about the power of attorney for property, or what's also known as the durable power of attorney for property. Now, I have a warning for all of you. The power of attorney for property should only be granted to someone who you trust more than your lifelong friend, more than your spouse, more than your closest personal confidant. It could even be your closest personal confidant, but you have to trust them. Let's talk about the power of attorney for property. First of all, what does it do? So I talked about how with the healthcare POA, it allows someone to make decisions for healthcare. Power of Attorney for Property allows someone to manage your property. For instance, say there's a medical bill and you're in a coma. They can pay the bill for you. Say someone is elderly and they have the signs of dementia. They want to uh, do this Power of Attorney for Property. It allows that person to sell the home or to make changes to the home that would allow that person to be at home longer. That's what it allows you to do. And that's the great empowering part of the Power of Attorney for Property. It also allows you to avoid a process called guardianship. Now, again, guardianships are going to be a completely different episode, but the basics of our guardianship are someone steps into your shoes. They, they say to the court, and it is a court process, they say to the court that you are unable to make any decisions on your behalf. And not only should you not be making decisions, the person petitioning to become your guardian should be allowed to make decisions for you even overruling you and that's one of the cool things about these powers of attorney for property and health care they allow you to always make your decisions you can overrule your agent so long as you have the capacity to do so but the one thing to keep in mind though is that if a guardianship is established you lose that autonomy you lose that control so it's best to pick the person you want to do it rather than going through the surrogacy laws rather than going through the court process have these documents in place now here's my warning to you power of attorney for property is a license to steal no bank is going to question a power of attorney so long as on its face it is valid no investment company is going to tell an agent no if they don't have any reason to doubt what is going on with the power of attorney i had a client who had severe dementia. She was finally going into a nursing home, and I had drafted her estate plan, and part of it included a power of attorney for property, where her niece was her power of attorney. They had always had a close relationship. It really was heartfelt. In fact, many times the niece, keeping attorney-client privilege and confidentiality, would try to call and say, I just want to check in. Have you finished that? And I'm like, well, I can't tell you. But truly, they had a wonderful relationship when we were doing the estate plan. The person, the client was declared incompetent, and the next thing I know, I'm getting a call from the bank saying that she's run out of funds. And I'm like, what happened? Well, the niece decided that her aunt really wanted to go to Costa Rica, really did. So much so that aunt was willing to pay not only for herself to go to Costa Rica, but also her niece, her husband, and their three kids to go to Costa Rica. All expenses paid, flights paid. How generous, you would say. Then there was a receipt for an Uber driving the aunt back home to the nursing home on the day the plane left with the remaining family. That's what you have to look out for with a power of attorney. Now, I'm not saying that this is the norm. I am not saying that this is in any way the most common, but elder abuse, elder financial abuse is more common than we like to recognize in our society, and it's something that we'll devote a few episodes to, but watch out for it. Returning to the positive, though, if you truly trust someone, imagine what it it would mean if you could transition seamlessly, if you somehow are unable to make decisions. The person you trust takes and manages your state with the love and the care that you deserve. That's one of the wonderful things I get to see every day when I do these documents, because I see someone who has said, I am taking the necessary steps to protect myself and my assets. It really is empowering. The next document that we'll talk about is called the Living Will. Now you'll notice the word will in this one. It is not a quote will that we talked about earlier. The Living Will, also known as a care directive, is basically what happens at end of life and it is your wishes regarding end-of-life care so for instance say you are diagnosed with a terminal illness of some kind doesn't have to be terrible it could just be hospice care at the end of life due to renal failure all that stuff or it could be as aggressive as a cancer this outlines your wishes so it could be as simple as the end-of-life care that comes with old age, or it could be as complex as a cancer diagnosis. But what the living will does is it says, what are my priorities? And you have basically two choices, and I say basically because there's always nuance to this, that's why you call your estate planner, but you have two choices. The first one is if you value quantity of life over quality of life, there are certain religions that say, I must be kept alive as long as possible because it is God's will. Perfectly valid, perfectly acceptable, that's what you put in your healthcare directive. What I would say I see more time than not, and again, there's no definition of normal here. An estate plan is very personal, and so I don't want you to ever think that you should be influenced one way or the other. As an estate planner, I will give you advice as to what I think would be best for your financial situation or your family situation. Ultimately, As your attorney, it's my job to make sure that your wishes are fulfilled. What I see more often, though, is most people value quality of life over quantity. They want to make sure that if they were to recover from an illness or if it is at their end of life, they want to say, keep me comfortable. Make it so that way I pass with dignity and care and respect. And that's what the living will dictates. It's different from the power of attorney for health care because your power of attorney for healthcare, your agent under that document, does make end-of-life care decisions for you. However, the living will is what is known as an enforceable legal right. You make the choice and it governs what happens with you, despite what your healthcare agent may think. When you pick your agent for healthcare, it is a very emotional process. When we go through it, we're picking someone who may be our child, our spouse, someone we know very well, who knows us very well. But saying goodbye is really hard. That's what the living will does. It makes that easier for you and for your loved ones. The final document we're going to talk about on this episode is the appointment of agent for disposition of remains. Now, if there's one document, I say that these are the five essential documents that you need. If there's one document that I would say is the most optional of all of these, these, it is this one. Because the best thing you can do is to talk to your loved ones about what you want regarding after you pass away. Do you want a big funeral? Do you want to be cremated? There are so many wonderful ways to decay now. You can be cremated, traditional burial, embalming. There's now even human composting where you're not just put into a tree like you would normally. You get to become a forest. It is a really cool time to die in America. But what you want, the best thing you can do is to talk to your loved ones and say, this is what I want. This is what I would feel would give me the dignity of my passing and what I want my remains to do. Now I'm going to talk to our LGBTQ community just a little bit here because this is very important to our friends in the trans community. What this document allows to happen. You pick a person to take care of your remains and no one else is allowed to overrule them. I'm talking to trans people particularly. If you do not feel that your loved ones would carry out your wishes. If you have transitioned to the opposite gender and your family would want to see you returned back to the gender that you were assigned at birth, you can make it so that way your rights are protected. You can make sure that you are buried with the correct clothing, the correct pronouns, the correct obituary, everything. That's what this document allows you to do. So it's essential to the LGBTQ estate planning, which in June, we're doing an entire episode talking about LGBTQ estate planning. So there's nothing like ending on a sour note to make us happy that it's the end of the episode. I do want to thank everyone. Again, the five essential documents you need in your state plan are, of course, the will, the power of attorney for health care, the power of attorney for property, the living will, and the appointment of agent for disposition of remains. I'm Andrew Mertzenge, and we'll see you next time. Congratulations, you've reached the disclaimer. This podcast is a production of Prime Law Group, LLC, who are attorneys licensed only in the state of Illinois. The primary purpose of this podcast is educational in nature and does not constitute legal advice of any kind. While we love that you are a devout listener, please note that no attorney-client relationship is created by listening to or acting upon anything you hear from this podcast. The views expressed by guests on the show are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply any endorsement of them or any entity they represent. For more information, go to www.primelawgroup.com.